This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and we're joined today in Washington by David Sanger of The New York Times and Ed Luce of The Financial Times, and in Palo Alto, California, by the irrepressible Corey Shockey at Stanford (laughs) University. (laughs) See how irrepressible she is? Um, it just lifts all our spirits. Guys, I want to begin in a place that I never thought I'd begin. But what I'd like to talk about for a little bit is what we see as the philosophical roots of Trumpism. Now, I want to define it broadly. What are Trump's philosophical roots beyond those he sees in his own mirror every morning? What are those of the people around him? What can we glean from these philosophical roots to predict where we are going? Corey Shockey. Well, uh, you know, the Reverend Barkley, for whom the University of California at Berkeley is named, uh, believed that you (laughs) could not... Uh, have knowledge beyond the perception of your own senses, right? So if you didn't see it, hear it, smell it, touch it, taste it, you couldn't know that something existed. And I a little bit feel like that's the president, right? Like he is trying to create a world where only his perception of what's happening is reality. Yeah, that. Do you mind? If, do you mind if I chime in at this point? And I'm, I'm not going to. No, no, I'd love you. I'd, I'd love you to chime in, and I'd also like you to explain why the word Berkeley is pronounced Barkley. Well, yeah, so Corey referred to to Bishop Berkeley, after whom Berkeley University is named, or the other way around, one or the other. (laughs) Um, And I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to get sucked down that, divided by a common language and a different pronunciation rat hole. Um, But there was a little... I was tortured for a a semester, or as a a term, as we call them, in England at university with with, um, Berkeley. Barclay's um, philosophy, and it was that you, you can only know what you see, touch, and feel. Um, but he then sort of turns into this sort of spectacular um, uh, sort of theory, theologian as well, and I don't know quite how he got that from his senses. But at any rate, we, we, the, the dispute between Hume and Barclay was summarized as believing as seeing, which is Barclay, and seeing is believing, which is Hume. <laughs> Um, and Trump, I don't think, would um, would understand the philosophical dispute between the two because he believes what he sees Say and sees what so. he believes, um, uh, you know, at at will, depending on where uh, on on where his interests lie. But I think if there is a serious, deep philosophical root to Trump, it's what Steve Bannon, ready-made, gives to him, and Steve Bannon does delve into all kinds of obscure theorists, generally European, generally early 20th century, generally fascist-leaning European theories about the cycles of history, 
and they tend to sort of be offshoots of Catholic mysticism, and they tend to be culturally very pessimistic. But they do, however half-baked, end up in a fully formed worldview, which is that the West is under threat. And I'm sure David, well, both David's and Corey can talk about how that that then gets regurgitated by President Trump in a speech in Warsaw. Um, just before the G20 meeting, so you know he, he's laboring under theories he's never heard of, but they they do ne- they do nevertheless seep into what he says and does. David, were you in Warsaw? I was not. I was at the G20 in uh, in Hamburg, but uh, didn't. Okay, so you you were you followed this this yep. speech that he gave. Yep. Though, right. Yep. Did do you, did you see in it any? underpinnings of a philosophy that might be attributed to Trump? Uh, I saw the underpinnings of a philosophy, but I didn't necessarily see the underpinnings of a philosophy that might be attributed to Trump. Um, I, I, you know, I'm way outclassed when it comes to Barclay or Berkeley versus Hume. <laughs> All I know is that Oxford and Cambridge weren't named after the good reverend, right? Uh, which, <laughs> and, and that, and that if he's— However, you, you attended a university in a place also called Cambridge. Yeah, that's true. Surely that's true. there must have been a, there must have been a philosophy course there, right? Well, remember? not one that I took while sober. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> However, and, and I, I wonder what the Reverend would think about Berkeley today and would probably be doing 33 RPMs in his grave. Um, but separate and apart from that, if I had to go um, assess what we thought about a uh, Trump philosophy today, uh, I would say that uh, – Trump is a great example of reverse empiricism, which is to say that he starts out with strongly held views and will start a meeting by telling you if you're interviewing him or telling his aides if they're meeting with him, here's how I stand on country X or issue X. And then the rest of the conversation is set with the president being set uh, presented with a set of facts that he had either never before considered or hadn't heard before or didn't come up during real estate transactions or whatever. And then France he, is America's oldest ally. Well, you not know, many people know that. Or who knew? Nobody or, knows. That. Who knew yeah. that the Chinese <laughs> and the Koreans hundreds of years ago actually went to war with each other? <laughs> I, I, it was a it was a wild discovery. Um, or as he said to me during an interview last year, the Chinese have complete control over North Korea. And then, you know, after meeting Xi Jinping and getting a 10-minute tutorial from it, comes out and says, turns out the Chinese don't have very much control over North Korea. So what we have here is a set of beliefs that are then modulated at some moment by a set of facts, okay? And sometimes that knocks him off of the set of beliefs. And I think Korea would actually be a pretty good example of that. And then there are other moments when a set of facts does not actually affect his view and the Paris Climate Agreement would probably be a good one there where the the distance between where the facts would lead him and what his base expected became too great, which takes you back to the Warsaw speech, which was um, – interesting in its discussion of a defense of Western values as if everybody in the West from the Poles he was um, 
uh, he was addressing to the British and the Americans share a common set of understandings which among the four of us, we might consider to be, you know, liberty and justice and the way you run a corruption-free government or a low-corruption government. And what he was gliding over was the fact that the polls actually don't share. I mean, you know, First Amendment views would not be like terribly strong with the current Polish uh, uh, government. Um, So he wants – to by use the Western values thing because it's a way of merging up his admiration of a number of authoritarian governments, including Putin's, with what he knows to be sort of the things America is supposed to stand for. So, you know, I just want to take a reality check here. I'm loving this discussion. It's very interesting. It's very erudite. I once grew up in a place called Berkeley Heights, New Jersey. And, was that uh, also named after realized, Reverend Barkley? <laughs> it was, but I think now it, I mean, where, maybe where, it was Barkley Heights. Well, yeah, Barclay where is Barkley Heights? Heights? Wait, where is it near to? It's, it's near Summit, New Jersey. Well, it's also it's near actually near named after the sewer commissioner of Summit, New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. It's actually, it's actually probably named after Busby Berkeley. But in any event, the... You know, there is this kind of desire, you know, somebody becomes the president and we immediately start to assume that they're like other presidents, they're leaders, they have doctrines, they have philosophies. And I've read lots of articles about the Trump doctrine, you know, and and then I think, how could this guy possibly have a doctrine if he has no worldview, he has no experience, and he doesn't really know what he wants in terms of policy? And the same is true with philosophy. Philosophy. Is this just, you know, us projecting onto his behavior of philosophy? Um, can he can I make a, a case philosophy? against that? Sorry, carry on. You, you, well, I, that's I what the, yes. No, no. Uh, no, I, no. I think that's it, exactly what I'm, I'm hoping you'll do. I think it's fair to say that he doesn't have um, a, a, a worldview philosophy um, or even a sort of political philosophy, although he has instincts. But I think he does have um, uh, a prosperity gospel philosophy. I think he does the power of positive thinking, the Norman Vincent Peale book, you know, that his father took him to that um, to that denomination um, church um, when it, in the 1950s when he was growing up. Um, and Trump, you know, it, it, it took a great interest um, in, in, in the idea that the demonstration of your moral worth is your financial worth. And it's it, it consistent with how he's behaved, um, you know, throughout his life, the monetization of his ego, the promotion of his ego to better monetize it. And I think it's pretty consistent with how the first family is handling the White House. So I think that is a philosophy. Uh, it's, uh, it's not one we are used to presidents having, um, and it's not a governing one, but it is a philosophy. Okay. Corey, are you buying into this notion that this big orange bag of wind actually has a philosophy? Yes, I don't think it. I don't think Bishop Barclay uh, would would have much trouble batting it away as as a consistent set of beliefs, rigorously 
uh, deconflicted with each other and pursued with consistency. Uh, but yeah, I buy Ed's argument that that basically Trump thinks prosperity solves all problems, and and that people who are rich are are deserving. Um, and that trade is is like a one-way arrow, not a two-way arrow, and that the international order is a Hobbesian uh, um, barrel roll over the over Niagara Falls, in which you're trying to throw each other out of the barrel. Um, but wow. of course, it's not true. I'm right? just, like, I'm just sitting. Sh- I'm just sitting here savoring that one, the Hobbesian barrel roll over Niagara Falls, of which you're it's trying a great to one. push each other out of the barrel. That's, That's because every barrel, podcast. every barrel run over Niagara Falls is nasty, brutish, and short. <laughs> <laughs> but especially if you don't have the barrel to protect you. Yeah. Um, wow, so, you guys. So, a, barrel, a barrel run without a barrel. Oh, yes, David. So... Um, I think that if you took the philosophy of prosperity, if you believe that to be a uh, a philosophy instead of sort of an instinct, and you or merged, a character flaw, or and you merged it with if you merged that with nationalism, you would sort of get a little bit closer to this because it can't simply be prosperity. It's got to be that America is the winner out of all of this. So what's the theme for this week? Is it Don Jr. was brilliant to take that meeting? No. The theme for this week is made in America. Now, I'm not quite sure how we're going to match the White House theme with, say, where the steel in Trump properties is made or where the um, designer line that Ivanka sells is made. They're that's going to be a little bit of work on their part. But the philosophy is basically the prosperity is chiefly for us. And that explains why we have to rewrite trade deals. And it explains why we shouldn't run trade deficits with countries that we're also defending like South Korea and Japan. And that's the tough merger there. And that's why you've seen General McMaster and others go out and make the argument that prosperity for us is actually prosperity for all. That, you know, when I'm, when it, what's good for America is good for the world out here. And at the G19 plus one, I'm not sure I found anybody in any other country that actually bought into that. Well, that's yeah, because what I have two it is other is a refu- to follow on to this. Yes, go on, Corey. I, I was just going to say, because it's a refutation of the entire philosophy on which the United States built the post-World War II order and, and which American foreign policy had been trending to since at least Woodrow Wilson. The notion that what is good for us, the rules by which we can be successful and prosperous are open to all, all can benefit from them, and mutually beneficial outcomes are what preserve peace. At least those were the ostensible rules. But let's let's ask ourselves a couple of questions here. First of all, are there any other world leaders, current or past, that you can think of that shared the Trumpian worldview? 
of of nationalistic uh, prosperity. I mean, he would tell you that it was sort of a Teddy Roosevelt kind of that when we asked him what were his you know the eras of uh, where he thought America was uh, at its its most prosperous and that he'd like to replicate. He mentioned too the 1950s. So okay, but there America was on top because the rest of the world was rebuilding from the war and TR's period, but. Uh, he had a hard time matching that up with the observation that during that time, American foreign policy was hardly stay at home. We were busy taking over the Philippines and Cuba and, you know, all those kind of things. Um, well, also, also, you know, T- Teddy Roosevelt built his campaign around trust busting and corporate sector reform. Not your, exactly. Your historical memory is a little more detailed than I think the White House really wanted you to go on that, David. <laughs> yeah, so sorry. I'm terribly sorry. Corey, can you think of, you know, a pre-Trumpian, proto-Trumpian Trump predecessor? Uh, uh, Mussolini comes to mind, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I was thinking futurists. of Silvio Berlusconi. Yeah, but yeah, go on. <laughs> The Italian futurists of the 1910s and 1920s um, actually sound a lot like Steve Bannon and President Trump when they get in their dark, um, in the dark direction that they go. I think if the president thinks he's Theodore Roosevelt, I would love to hear President Trump read out Roosevelt's 1901 uh, annual message to Congress because it would be a huge improvement over the president. David own, covered that one. President Will you Trump's be a little careful with that? <laughs> He's like actually a living expert. And <laughs> <laughs> do 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 have a do you have another here? Well, I'm not going to steal your Berlusconi answer because um, you've you've just given away that that's your your parallel. Although, although I w- I would say that the you know the using public office for personal enrichment bit and or for protection of business interests, you know, is a big overlap there. Um, I think that Trump is, uh, it's hard to think of a Trump figure who's an exact parallel to him because he is sui generis. But the Republican Party in the last sort of 30 years, really since Gingrich, um, but I I mean, I suppose arguably since Goldwater, but Gingrich really um, has become ever more apocalyptic. Um, It's become ever um, uh, less um, empirical in how it approaches policy and it's become ever more um, prone to um, using culturally very inflammatory methods to um, to play politics and I think Trump is actually a logical consequence of that and I think he he blew up the party by out apocalypsing it um, but that doesn't mean to say he isn't ultimately a creature of, of where the Republican Party has been heading in the last generation. So, you know, I, I would see the party as having prepared the ground for Trump. Well, I think that's true, by the way. And I think a lot of people in the party, particularly conservative columnists who've disowned Trump, are trying to distance themselves from a train that they got running out of the station. But I honestly don't think it's Berlusconi because I think it's an unfair comparison to Berlusconi. I think Trump philosophically uh, is the love child of Nero and Caligula. Um, uh, Good Lord, David. 
Um, well, That's going to be a hell of a know, movie, like, is all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> um, can we? Can, yeah, we, can no, you tell right. me what, what role? Ed, could, what role does Ed Luce get cast in in that movie? I, I cast. Well, <laughs> I'm going to say quickly the horse because I don't want to see that happen to Corey Shockey's horse. I, uh, I am the barrel that contains Nero and Caligula heading over the Niagara Falls. I'll play the barrel. Yeah. If only Bob Guccione were still alive to direct this sequel. Um, but it, it's, those of you who have to go look that up, go look it I, up. But, I, even I um, got that. I, I think they're... Yeah, good. Good. Um, I, I Hopefully, Corey did not. But but in any event, you know, I think there are other mo- modern examples, and, and they're, they're actually plentiful. Because I think, you know, the Shah of Iran, to almost any Latin tin pot kleptocrat... Um, is closer. Um, in fact, you know, Robert Mugabe is probably closer to Trump than 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 most traditional Western leaders. Um, wow. Uh, well, it just. You know, I don't disagree. Like I'm. I, it's a, it's an expression of admiration for the comparison, David. It's it's not an objection. Thank you. Well, I, I, I thank you. Um, let me ask you a question. Do you think there's any philosopher who has ever existed who would own Trump, who would say, oh, yeah, this guy, he's got it right? Hmm. Who is in a, a modern ruler today? No, no, a philosopher. Like, you know, Casanova. let me throw out one. Does Casanova count as a philosopher? If he does to you, Ed... No, I mean, that, that, all he, I really wanted to say was Casanova. I didn't want to elaborate yeah, on his right. philosophy. Is, is that a star you steer by? But, you know, like, you know, you could say, well, the existentialists, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, the existentialists that figure, you know, life is short and you have to sort of live it while you can. And certainly uh, Trump seems to be oriented towards that in, in the extreme in terms of his own life. But But I was just wondering if there was anybody else out there who might say, oh, yeah, this guy's got it right. <laughs> it's hard. That's very hard. <laughs> That's, it would take a I mean, deep t- academic at Stanford like Corey, I think, to come up with the right <laughs> answer for that one. And she's still working on the Caligula thing. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the idea of Corey as the deep academic of the deep state. Yeah. What is deep academia? What is deep academia, Corey? <laughs> Um, wow. Uh, I don't know, but I do. <laughs> but you I will do reveal very it. Much like, I very much like that title um, for me, and, as, and I will wear it as gracefully as I can. Yeah, well, good. And, you know, you're going to have the opportunity because we are going to have the deep academic cage match that we promised in a prior episode <laughs> in just two weeks when we conclude this month with the one-on-one face-off between Corey Shockey and Graham Allison on the Thucydides trap. Um, And I know, you know, Corey, you've been giving Thucydides a lot of thought. Uh, And, (laughs) you know, do you want to tip your hand a little bit about how Graham should prepare for this um, Battle of the Titans? Well, uh, certainly Graham Allison doesn't need to prepare for a discussion about a book he has written and a project he's run over several years. But there are a couple of things about the notion of the Thucydides trap that, that just don't seem right to me. First is that 
the the concept, as I understand it, is that uh, it is inevitable that a hegemon will be so fearful of a rising power that the hegemon will choose war. And for the parallel to China, that means the United States would start a war with China um, in order that China not grow strong enough to be a rival. And and that's actually not the nature of the Peloponnesian War. It's Athens who starts uh, picking away at Sparta's allies, right? It's Athens who is pursuing violence against Corinth, and the Corinthians plead to the Spartans for protection. So, so the rising power starts this war, not the established power. Uh, in Thucydides' tale. And the second thing I will say to tip my hand is that uh, people who view themselves as political political realists, right, the hard-nosed, tough-minded, you know, it's always been the rule that the smaller subject, that the smaller subject to the large and the weaker subject to the powerful. Thucydides does say that, but it merits reflection that everyone in Thucydides' history who takes that view ends up destroyed themselves. So it's not a successful strategy in Thucydides' telling. Um, but yeah, I, I am I having a to... lot of fun about the summer of everyone misreading Thucydides. I, I got to say, Graham Allison is in for a lot of trouble. There's a reason that Corey Shockey's nickname at Stanford is the meat grinder, <laughs> that she takes <laughs> arguments like this, chops them up, and turns them into burger. Um, I, you know, David, you've you've worked with Graham a long time. Is do you prognosticate that that there's any possibility Corey's going to be able to hold her own on this? I, I mean, would, Graham's going to be able to hold his own. I was about to say I would never bet against Corey. Um, uh, you know, so Graham will, I suspect, say that his own argument is not necessarily that it's always the um, status quo power that starts the the conflict, that the, the effect of a rising power and a status quo power sets the conditions for conflict and which one of them actually triggers it is not especially relevant, I think he will argue, to the question of whether or not you ultimately get into conflict. I think that the deeper argument that you can make here is whether the selection of – I think it's 16 examples that Graham has of a rising uh, power and a, um, and a status quo power is the complete data set. And the critics of the book have made the argument that in fact there are, are other ways to, uh, to slice that. So let me um, circle so back. So I would make the reverse argument that – Okay. That there are actually far fewer cases that part of the reason that the book is problematic is the methodology for case selection is problematic. That, that's essentially it, that you could you could go after a larger universe of cases, not all of which ended up in this kind of a, of a conflict. But that doesn't get to you – know, all that tells you is that the percentage chances that the US and China would get into conflict might be a little bit lower than what, what Graham you know, postulates in this thing. But I don't think it goes to his fundamental argument that these are the conditions under which conflict frequently breaks out. So, Ed, 
I want to circle back because we've got just a few minutes left in this episode. And I know that you have uh, just completed a review of a book about the philosophical underpinnings of Stephen Bannon, who is the philosophical guru um, of, uh, of, of Donald Trump. And so I, you've obviously immersed yourself in the book and know it inside out. Tell us a little bit more about those beyond the, the brief overview you gave a moment ago. So this is uh, by Joshua Green, the very, the very talented journalist formerly of uh, the Atlantic Monthly, now of Bloomberg Businessweek. And he's, you know, been covering the, the Breitbart universe since before Trump, a new Bannon since before Trump um, became a candidate. So he's well very well positioned to write a, 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 a book on Bannon. It's called The Devil's Bargain. And what really struck me about this book, which I've just literally just finished um, reading, um, is the degree to which Trump's own philosophy is entirely malleable and according to circumstance. So I think we'd forgotten that, you know, after Romney was defeated by Obama uh, in 2012, Trump came out um, more than once um, to say, well, Romney was way too hard on on Hispanics and on immigrants, illegal or otherwise, and this whole self-deportation thing, how can you win? Um, um, but that, you know, Trump gradually discovered as he probed his own chances and went on more and more talk radio shows and on Fox that and and watched how many, you know, which tweets got retweeted the most on Twitter, that actually the line that got the most applause and got him the most attention was indeed the nativist line, uh, one that made Romney's self-deportation stance look moderate. Um, and Bannon then gets introduced to Trump by David Bossy of, you know, vast right wing conspiracy fame from the, from the late 90s um, and presents him really with this ready made um, uh, a, a sort of encapsulation of what Trump is experiencing on social media. And Bannon himself, of course, has these. Uh, uh, we were talking about this earlier and Corey made the point that self-taught intellectuals often go to very obscure intellectual sources because they don't know the canon and you know Bannon has that sort of tendency they're the autodidacts tendency to you know delve into really obscure and obscurantist thinkers but nevertheless he has this sort of worldview that dresses up what Trump's experiencing as a philosophy that Trump then calls uh, America first but if you look at Trump's Twitter activity over the last four years you will see his most retweeted news source by far was Breitbart News. And um, although Breitbart News was was founded by Breitbart, the late Andrew Breitbart, it was really turned into what it became by Steve Bannon. Um, so the book really, you know, looks at uh, looks at what brought Trump to power and the um, the sort of nativist echoes and how Bannon really harnessed them to Trump's ends. It's a very, it's a very, very good book and I recommend it. It suggests to me, Corey, that part of the flaw in our discussion here is that it's a little bit highbrow and a little bit political science geopolitics oriented when in fact some of the most disturbing philosophical guidelines within the Bannon world and by extension the Trump world have to do with issues like race and 
status in society and civilization, a word that came up a lot in the speech in Warsaw, uh, and in fact are about keeping our people like us safe from other people. Would you say that was fair? And is that really the dark underside of a pretty dark philosophy to begin with? Yes and yes. Uh, I think my own sense is that quite a lot of people reveled in the way President Trump shoved back at the political correctness of American society. And there's even a slice of President Trump's supporters who are actively opposed to the kind of inclusiveness that opportunity uh, blind to barriers produces, right? So, so they don't want to compete against uh, me and new immigrants and be- because they at some level doubt their ability to have either their social stature or their employment stature. Um, if, if the the barriers that were in place in the 1950s or in the 1910s uh, are removed. So I do think there is a racial undercurrent to this, but it's not just race. It's also about gender. It's about what a, an opportunity society produces. And President Trump gave, you know, full-throated voice to what is not considered uh, acceptable political discourse in most of the United States uh, these days. Mm. Gentlemen, do you have anything you'd like to add to that? Well, I think that's exactly what what made the base go to him and what he is caught in now and what the internal battles between Steve Bannon and the more establishment figures of the uh, Trump White House are caught in right now is the fact that what plays to the base undercuts the allies. And that's why we have this oddity of having the president go out and try to say something that the base cheers on because of its nationalistic nature and then have – General Mattis or Secretary Tillerson or General McMaster step out and say, no, our assurances to the rest of the world, our commitments to the rest of the world, our attitude to the rest of the world is fundamentally unchanged. And so what really struck me when I was um, first at the G20 and then in Ukraine with Secretary uh, Tillerson was you have all of these government leaders sort of take you aside and say, "What, what should I believe, the tweets or the people who come out? To, give, to tell us the things we've been hearing from George W. Bush and Barack Obama and for years before that. And you don't really have the heart to tell them that they should really believe the tweets because that's really where the president's head's at. But it may not be where the policy is at. So, you know, the China policy so far hasn't looked a whole lot like what Bannon had in mind. It might by the time we're all done with this. The Iran policy is just beginning to sort of form but doesn't yet look fully Bannon-like. If it was fully Bannon-like, he would have come in and said the nuclear deal is gone. So that's the constraint. 
Yeah. And by the way, I recommend a very good article in the New York Times over the weekend about how all the money and lives that the United States have spent in Iraq have actually empowered Iran, that Iran is getting stronger and that recent Trump actions have only compounded that. Uh, in the last three minutes we've got here, I want to play a little bit of a rapid fire game. It's going to test your wits. Um, and uh, and so if you want to sit this out, David, go ahead. But uh, the... Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. You know, he, you, you can't see because he, he's uh, only... I'm in the studio here with him, but he, he's wearing a Make America Great Again baseball cap. I just it, it wanted is. you to know that. It is. I, I cannot I, believe, I, I believe it. Yeah, he's changed. It yeah, says, I, it says MAGA that, on the front and Deep State Radio on the back. <laughs> and these are going to be wow. extremely popular because if you... It's all a question yeah. of which way you wear the baseball cap. <laughs> That's right. It's called it's our Sideways, new. It's our new with your pants falling it's our down. New ski- <laughs> it's our new schizo cap. It's special, special from Deep State Radio. Um, don't know which way we're whether we're coming or going. So here's the thing. I would like you to name in the next two minutes Trumpism. Give it descri- describe it. Like for example, it's ethno national ethno nationalism in service of the oligarchy. Well, I'd like to. I'd like to sort of, you know, put to put 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 it into words that go beyond simply Trumpism. Okay, because you insulted me so, David, I'm going to take the first shot. I'd, okay, that was a loving. It was a loving taunt. Yeah. into a kiss on the cheek. Yeah, let me not think about that either. Again, a visual I could have done with that. <laughs> <laughs> but from deep down in our deep state silo here, and by the way, Ukraine has more empty silos than any place I've ever been. It's going to be Rosa's going to wow. have a great vacation there. I would say that's, that's where Rosa is this. <laughs> week. Rosa is this week in Ukraine doing, you know, Brookswood. That's a, a new sprucing, <laughs> she's sprucing up her vacation silo. That's right. And and and, it, and they're dirt cheap, too, because the Soviets left a lot of, like, empty ones out there, and they don't want them to have nukes anymore. So, um, so I would say, I would pick yeah. up the old phrase I had. I would say reverse empiricism with a twist of Bannon nationalism. I like that. It's a cocktail. It's a cocktail. That's That's a cocktail. I'll have one of those. What about you, Corey? Wow. Um, Pressure's on, kid. (laughs) Yeah. I am. We're just friends. It's just you and maybe (laughs) (laughs) 20,000. Belligerent mercantilism of both the economic and social variety. Yeah, very nice. Belligerent mercantilism, maybe narcissistic mercantilism. Ed, um, so I, I I can say what it's not. It's not what you hear on the campus of Berkeley University. Oh, sorry, Berkeley, Berkeley. <laughs> um, it, it's um, uh, populist nationalism um, uh, driven by a crude, egotistical sense of transactionalism. Mm, Excellent. Very interesting. Well, folks, as you sit there at home and you write all of these things down, and we do know you take notes because that's the kind of nerds you are, um, if you've got better suggestions, send them on in. We love them. Corey, do we love our ER nerds? I mean, excuse me. So... 
<laughs> so By ER the nerds. deep state, I, the deep state radio oh. nerds are adorable. Yeah. I have to say, I have yeah. enormous fondness for them. The number of versions of the tiara of optimism that people have created for me, I am just. I I can't wait to wear them all. Thank you. Thank you, Deep State Radio nerds. We love the Deep State Radio nerds, despite my gaffe a second ago. And I have to say, we were just sending out like uh, queries for people to help us design the website and some other things. And one of the designers came back with a picture of her tiara of optimism that she keeps by her workstation. Um, <laughs> who knew? Who knew that this was the fashion statement of the summer, despite Sanger's invention of that hat? Um, which That's a fishing hat, by the way. The... I just want you to know, yeah. because it, you can flip it either way depending on who your fishing partners are <laughs> yeah well all i could say is i agree with Corey. the deep state radio nerds are the best audience in the world but deep state radio nerds don't be lonely go out get a friend let's double the audience each one of you get one more friend bring one more person into this wonderful conversation have them think of a new term for trumpism get in line for the mugs and the other things that we'll soon be offering on the deep state radio network store um and all i can say is You'll have more fun, and we'll have more fun, and the Twitterverse will be alight with your witticisms. Uh, please do that soon. Do that, in fact, today, so that when you come back tomorrow for the next episode of Deep State Radio, there's even more of you out there listening and having a good time. In the meantime, thank you, Corey. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, David. And please come back soon for an upcoming episode of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you. <laughs>